<laughs> Good morning, everyone. We are the Natural Selection. Welcome back. I uh, hope you're all well rested. We're here today to talk to you about sleep. We're definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, we have Nick. Hello. We have Naomi. Hello. And we have other Nick. Hello. Are you both well? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good weekend. Are you yeah. well rested? Definitely. Trying. To, yeah. Try, tried anyway. Yeah. I did think that this would be the best one to get the most sleep for, but I failed miserably. Oh no. Yeah. So uh, if I fall asleep in the middle, just assume it's commitment to the podcast cause. On, to- on topic, in the theme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a lovely week. Been a bit of sunshine. That's nice. Not here. It's been pretty rainy. Wow. You know, there's no point in being cold in July. Although I do like, I have to say, on theme, I do like sleeping or laying in when it's raining outside. That's probably the nicest time to sleep. That's true. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Oh, sorry. No. I was going to say, or at least falling asleep is nice when it's raining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard that website where it just plays rain noises? Oh, no. No. Yeah, if you Google it, it just plays rain noises in the background while you do everything else. Nice. I'll have to um, look that up. You can also do the same thing by just getting a live stream of Ireland. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> we'll just move there. That'll help yeah. too. <laughs> but yeah, I suppose we should get on with the show. So we'll return after this short break with the news. Welcome back, everyone. So we're here with the news. There's uh, been a lot of science news this week. Did you guys find anything exciting on your adventures? Yeah. In fact, it's a, a good sign that my friends and loved ones know me well. This article was sent to me by, like, four people on the same morning <laughs> uh, about the reintroduction of wild bison to the UK. Um, and usually, I think, when we talk about reintroductions, especially of, like, big animals, at least in the United States, we're talking about things that in the last 100 or 200 years have gone out, locally extinct, have have gone missing in the local population, like the gray wolves in Yellowstone and Yosemite. But these bison haven't been in the UK for 6,000 years, which is, I think, a really interesting idea of reintroduction. So basically, they're taking four bison uh, from herds, I think, in the Netherlands or in Poland, and then they're going to introduce them into a forest in Kent. And the idea is not only to introduce the megafauna, but also the impact that they have on the environment, which is sort of like grazing these forests down, these pine forests, so that a mix of different vegetation and wildlife can live there. But what do you guys think about that, about reintroducing something that hasn't been there since, I guess, since people have been there? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I'm not sure. Um I suppose, it, yeah, for me, I think reintroduction makes more sense if it's, like, a, yeah, recent extinction or something I think that's been manipulated by humans a lot. I think that's a great um, opportunity to reintroduce. But this one, I suppose, was it humans that drove bison to extinction in the UK or was it, like, the glaciations? Do, do we know? That's a great question. Um, I think in our one of our recent podcasts, we talked about how the debate rages on about human-caused extinctions. So, not sure about that. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, like, if, if they've done their research on how it'll impact the the local environment, I think it, it's a cool idea, particularly if they think it'll have benefits to the ecosystem as a whole. 
I think that they've done reintroductions in Germany and in Poland and the Netherlands and maybe some other places in, in Western Europe. And it's looked like positive impact. So I think that's why they're thinking about doing it in the UK too. Cool. Although I suppose with, with the ones in and in Poland, certainly, I think the the European bison had been there up until it almost went extinct, though. So I suppose it, it's only been re- reintroduced since it's almost extinction, like within the last hundred years. So, so this is a different time scale, but interesting. Right. For the listeners who may not be aware, this article was sent by me as well to, to both of them. Uh, <laughs> I think if I didn't intervene, the entire podcast could have been these two talking about extinct large fauna <laughs> <laughs> Naomi is an expert in um, European bison oh I wouldn't say expert I, I dabbled dabbled <laughs> a strong dabbler <laughs> yeah <laughs> I like the idea that in your head you're just a keen amateur European bison enthusiast <laughs> yeah you know that's very common isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I found some news Bison being introduced to the UK might scare some people, but I feel my news might scare everyone, is they found new spiders. Oh, yeah. Oh. So it's not as scary as it sounds. We already knew they existed. We had just been calling them the wrong name. Not that they'd given us their name. We'd given them their name. We'd given them a scientific name. It's these trapdoor spiders in Australia. And what we've been calling them is, uh, and bear with me, because I feel like this is a really unfair way to spell any word, but it's E-U-O-P-L-I-N-I. So any guesses from you two would be very welcome on how you pronounce E-U-O-P. Euopliny? You, it definitely is you. You is the, is Greek for good. Like euphonia, like a pleasant sound is a good, good sound, euphonos. Mm. Um, okay. So I think it would be you, but I don't know what Pliny means. That's interesting. Europliny is the old genera, and previously all the trapdoor spiders were sort of lumped together. Uh, these Australian golden trapdoor spiders. What they actually found was that there were two of them that should belong to an entirely different genera. So they've invented a new genera called Cryptophoris. So what they were doing is they were looking not just at the genetics, but the construction of the trapdoor. And they found that there was a clear distinction on how these two spiders uh, had evolved to build their trapdoor enough that they were able to put them confidently into a new genera. So we now have two new species and a whole new genera of spider. Cool. Cool. I feel like, sorry, we'd be more enthusiastic if it if well i personally would be if it wasn't spiders i'm sorry to i feel like yeah you'd be more enthusiastic if it was a buffalo is what you're saying <laughs> i think um, yeah any almost anything it's not a spider <laughs> or an arachnid for, for those of our listeners who are interested in new spiders there's a little section that i have later we're going to talk about some spiders so keep stay tuned spiders will come back that's cool did you find it on the web I'm going to die alone Uh, please rescue us from this Naomi what um, have you found so my piece of research is quite cool so basically well to put in context I I looked it up on Google as well so I found the actual paper but I looked it up on Google as well and there's an article about it on the Daily Mail 
website. Um, just to read the head the headline of this article to put it in context for you: Gray parrot Griffin humiliates Harvard students by beating them in a memory test. So yeah, that's the idea behind my article this week. Basically, this research was looking at um, intelligent behavior and the ability to store and manipulate information in visual working memory. So basically what they did was they got a parrot, a gray parrot, and they got them to perform the shell memory test. So if you're not familiar with this test, basically it's when there's like a ball or an object underneath a cup and then the cup gets moved and you have to track object and what color object so they did this in various ways they compared the parrot to both children and adult humans and um, the parrot vastly out uh, outperformed children and generally outperformed the adults as well i think it was only really when the matches were above four so the swaps were above four that the parrot tended to do worse but the article goes goes on to mention that it might actually just have been attention that it just lost interest and refused to perform because it was bored so yeah that was a very interesting article the basics behind what it's trying to look at are evolutionary origins of these manipulation mechanisms because birds are quite far apart from humans trying to look at whether this is a the evolutionary origins are convergent or homologous homologous um convergent or because of evolution so they're shared origins do you think if they started a university for parrots they would call it macarvard <laughs> <laughs> oh that's really interesting has this sort of study been done with any other animals no so they haven't really done it with any other animals and they've only done it with this not that i'm aware of anyway um they've only done it with this one bird as well griffin he's a great parrot so there there is um some difficulty in the statistics of this because you know it's just this one parrot and he tends to be quite good at these sort of experiments because he's done them before but it definitely kind of is a starting point to look at other animals um, and their ability to um, visually manipulate memory. Cool. Should we have a short break and return with our theme of the week? Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Join us in a minute. We'll be talking more about sleep. Welcome back, everyone. We're here today to talk about one of my favourite things to do, and I don't want to boast, guys, but it's something I'm really good at, is sleep. Are you guys good sleepers? I think Sometimes. I used to be better. You used to be better? Yeah, I've gotten worse at sleeping as I get older. Oh. And, Naomi, when you say sometimes, do you mean, like, at night? <laughs> yeah. I'm not a good day sleeper. I'm not a good napper. Uh, no, sometimes I... Generally, these days I'm fine, but sometimes I'm not good at sleeping. And I think we'll find out why later on. <laughs> it's just a cliffhanger for you guys. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I really like as well that um, because of the practicalities of lockdown and shared housing, two of us actually record this podcast in bed at the moment. So this is a very apt... <laughs> It's a very apt topic as we sit here. Um, it might be a little too easy for us to drift off. 
Hold on, I can move it to my bed if you guys want third. Oh, wow. Should we? Yeah. Just make it topical. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, we're all in bed now. <laughs> Hundreds of miles apart. But uh, feel free to join us. It's probably going to be, I think, a quite sleepy, relaxed chat, don't you? So, yeah. So sleep is a fascinating thing, I suppose, for something so prevalent. It's not something that we ever really consider. I suppose it's not often you even find a sleeping animal, really, to the point where it's actually quite noticeable when you do. I mean, outside of our pets. I mean, what is sleep? Yeah, I have some interesting information about sleep generally. So I think it's quite a complicated for something that seems so simple and so widespread. I think it's quite a complicated concept, given how different so many types of animals are. I think how we apply one idea to something can be kind of difficult when when different animals do different things but it's very widespread across a lot of different animals and so I found some interesting articles about how it it can be found in almost all animals except the most simplest so everything basically until sponges seems to sleep Um, most of what I found says that everything they've looked at tends to sleep Mm. even animals as um, simple as Harvard students sleep so yeah (laughs) And um, basically it refers to a, a behavioral and a physiological state that's characterized by altered consciousness and reduced responsiveness to external stimuli. So basically okay. it means that your brain slows down a little bit and you tend to not be as responsive to your outside world. Also tends to alter your like homeostatic regulation. So how your body regulates itself. But yeah, and then it's something we mentioned in a couple of episodes ago, the circadian clock. So that is important for regulating sleep. I did see that one of the most confusing things that people found around this was even though it's well understood, as you say, that like so many animals sleep, like all mammals sleep, all birds sleep, most fish sleep. But we all sleep for different times. But it is amazing. I mean, I read somewhere that bats, some bats, I think it was brown bats, sleep 18 hours a day. Yeah. I've seen that. That's 82% of their uh, total time is sleeping. That's a lot. Yeah. I think some animals, I think is it sheep, only do three to four hours a day. Yeah. And actually something I found, um, a trend that tends to happen is carnivores tend to sleep a lot more than herbivores. And so some things I saw kind of said said different reasons why something I would think particularly for herbivores is that they generally need to spend a lot of time eating because of their their food source tends to not have that many nutrients it's hard to break down so they kind of have to eat a lot in order to get their correct nutrients or requirements Um, and another thing I suppose is that uh, herbivores tend to be prey as well so they maybe need to be a little bit more vigilant a lion doesn't necessarily need to be worried about someone, something attacking it that much. So it can sleep for 56% of its time, 13 hours a day. Do you know what's interesting, though, is I found, I imagine this is, depends on environment, but I saw somewhere that um, you're actually sleep was theorized as a protection against being predated. So while we might think that's paradoxical because you're lying still and if you're found, there's nothing you can do. Actually, if you're foraging and an animal that needs to forage and move a lot, say if you're in the jungle, then your movement is much more likely to attract a predator than one that would accidentally stumble across you if you were lying still. 
so there's actually an argument for some animals being asleep is the safest thing they can do wow interesting that it does at like on the face of it it does sound sort of like paradoxical but when you explain it like that it makes makes sense particularly if you live in like yeah a, a forested sort of canopy area i suppose maybe if you're on like a savanna or a plane it might be a little bit more obvious yeah i suppose imagine if you're a herd animal doesn't really help <laughs> yeah if you can see this giant herd then uh yeah you're probably going to get found out pretty quickly but then the yeah. herds are all going to sleep at the same time of course mm. and and some some animals like horses um can actually sleep standing up as well uh, they can't go into REM sleep while standing up, but they can kind of have a, a restful non-REM sleep. Apparently, the the sort of eight-hour recommendation for adult humans has shifted over time, and now adults actually get an average of about six and a half hours of sleep every night, at least in the Western world. And in about forty years ago, in the nineteen eighties or so, the average was eight. But at the beginning of the 1900s, the average was 10 hours a night. Whoa. Um, So in the last 120 years, our average of sleep has gone down about three and a half hours. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really shocking. I wonder Mm -hmm. if that's the prevalence of things like electric lights, which obviously we didn't have in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that and sort of the increasing demands on our like 24-7 schedule like internet and connect connection in that way it becomes less sleep is less of a sort of sacred break time yeah well that's what i found most fascinating about this sort of reading about sleep is that the variance of it because while it was accepted that all nearly all animals require sleep how animals go about finding that sleep varies massively so in some species of dolphins they're born in the middle of a migration so they may not actually sleep for the first days or weeks after their birth. And wow. then they will catch up with that sleep at a later date. So one of the requirements of sleep is if you miss sleep, you have to basically catch up on it at some point. But some animals seem to have evolved a way where they can delay this catch up much more than we could. We wouldn't, even as adults, probably be, be able to stay awake migrating for weeks. Wow. Whoa. That's cool. I saw something sort of similar with um with whales as well, that sometimes the mother kind of the they tend to sleep less as well, some species when, when they're uh, born. And that in some species the mother sort of like basically kind of holds them up so they don't drown while they're moving along, swimming along. So that's kind of interesting because whales we often think I know Nick how much you love whales. They're often seen as very intelligent animals. And I found something, a study which claimed that the amount of REM sleep we get is linked to intelligence. Those with higher intelligence need more REM sleep, which might explain why Naomi sleeps more than I do. Um, (laughs) But uh, so this scientist found that one problem they'd had with sleep and these disparate sort of readings of how sleep occurs in different animals was really troubling because it, it it's so paradoxical and so confusing that there'd be such variations in sleep so what he did is which is actually quite common in other scientific studies is he linked them through evolutionary lineages so he's actually comparing them on how closely evolved they are and, and taking that into account when studying and what he found is that yeah that the amount of rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep 
that animals have is linked to their intelligence. So there might be some animals that might sleep three hours a day where others sleep more than 20, but it's, it's to do with brain size and relative intelligence. So the other thing that was interesting that they found with this was that it was presumed that a species would sleep to conserve energy. But they actually found the opposite, that species with high metabolic rates for their size need less a non-REM sleep, not more. So what this would imply, that animals with high metabolic rates may sleep less because they burn more calories. And the reason they're sleeping less is because they have to go find more food. So rather than being they're resting to stop needing to find food, they actually have to be awake because they need to find that food. Oh, OK. Interesting. But yeah, it's definitely the strongest signal they found was linked to intelligence. Cool. And REM sleep's amazing anyway, because that's the time we dream. Mm. Oh, to sleep, perchance to dream. All right, there's the verb. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but in that sleep, what dreams may come? Why do we dream? Um, I have started writing down my dreams in the morning, and they're sometimes incredibly mundane and sometimes incredibly bizarre and supernatural. But apparently that one common theory, and I'm not sure how agreed upon in the neurological community this is, but one theory for the, the evolution and development of dreams is as an adaptation for dangerous situations. So basically that the dream is acting like a simulator for you to sort of play out life-threatening situations as a creature going about your life so for example you have a dream a bad dream about a lion chasing you the dreams where you know when you're being chased by something and you're running and trying to get away those are dreams that would prepare you maybe for being pursued by a predator um or dreams where you're standing in front of an audience naked um and no no that's not actually going to happen but it would prepare you for that feeling and then when you actually encounter it in real life you'd be like okay I've done this before I know what to do and it sort of creates these pathways in your brain where you can respond more readily because you've done it before even though it wasn't real I don't know how accurate that is but it's an interesting theory and one I like to think about I had heard there was a the, yeah there's there's a link between retaining information and having good sleep so I've done a study on on humans and that if you deprive them of sleep, they actually retain less of what they had learned in the day. So there appears to be a function relating to memory. So I suppose we often think of that because we're so preconditioned. I suppose we're all horrific nerds. So we think, well, learning through exams and that idea of we would read something and learn it. But that's not true for the most of history. Like for a lot of human history, there wasn't written word. So that idea of what we had learned would have been a physical thing. So maybe we had have learned to, to be very simple, to create fire. And then that sleep could be replaying that action to help us learn it and sort of reinforce it within our memories. Cool. That makes sense. I often, when I start a new job, I often have dreams about work a lot, which is really mm. sad, but I guess it sort of ties in with that. I'm like trying to relearn or like help myself learn something I've done throughout the day. I sometimes have dreams that have really specific places and I in the dream walk through those places like a city that I've well, like a block in a city that I've been to once or a park or something and I think that maybe in this theory that that would be a way of me like remembering the place even though I've only been there a couple of times in real life 
I revisit it in my mind and can like map it out again. And I suppose it's an important thing because again, we're looking very human centric where we could go out and have another go at it. But for animals where sort of life is a relentless struggle for many of them, the ability to sort of like get lost is not really one that's a fun thing because if you get lost, you might not find the watering hole. So that idea that, yeah, you need to reinforce the journeys you take could be really, really crucial for the survival of, um, yeah, any animal that you think that might need to move. Yeah. No, I think you're right, Nick, that there's something there about movement. And I mean, intelligence and movement, I don't know if there's a correlation there as well, but maybe that is connected to to the idea that dreaming and intelligence and moving around are all sort of connected. I suppose I'm unfortunate in that I never really remember my dreams, so I'm never really sure I'm meant to be learning. <laughs> well, that's I think that's the beauty of it is that it's happening subconsciously. So, in the sense of like things that you're supposed to, that that need a like a things that need a reflexive reaction from you, like jumping away from a predator, the in the those sort of things you don't need to consciously remember. So it makes you wonder what animals dream of be a fascinating insight to see what an animal would see as a threat or a situation that they would have to replay. I was reading some stuff on the evolution of REM sleep. While the vast majority of animals sleep, REM sleep is actually a lot rarer. So an REM sleep is when brain activity is sort of as if we're awake and we have rapid eye movement. And that's that's a sign of it. So if you, you can actually see people's eyeballs moving under their eyelids and you can see they're they're probably dreaming. The evolution of REM sleep is interesting because it's not even in all land animals. So it appears all mammals have REM sleep and it appears birds have REM sleep. Now, this is quite troubling because reptiles don't. And the fact that REM sleep is in both birds and mammals would suggest that it comes from a common ancestor because we are wildly separate on the evolutionary tree. There's there's a lot of reptiles in between us and birds. So where did REM sleep come from? Now, one theory is it could be linked to warm bloodedness, that perhaps the evolution of homeostasis and warm bloodedness is actually a key part of REM sleep. And maybe it's something to do with that because birds and mammals are both warm-blooded and reptiles are not. So maybe it's it's something around that. But one person suggested that what's quite interesting is reptiles during the day obviously have to regulate their body heat in a different way. So what they have is cycles of basking in the sun and then going out and moving about and going about their day and foraging and finding food and doing what reptiles do. And what they found is that these cycles of basking and then movement and then basking and then movement. And when looking at the brainwaves are actually strikingly similar to the patterns of REM sleep and non-REM sleep, REM sleep and non-REM sleep. So maybe the evolution of REM sleep has its roots in the basking and sort of motile stages of reptiles. That's really interesting, Nick. If both birds and mammals have REM sleep, but nothing in between does, like crocodiles, when did it involve? Did it evolve twice, or did it evolve in the amniotes and then get lost in the crocodiles and lepidosaurs? 
Well, interestingly, they have been recent studies which may have found the some sort of basal form of REM sleep in certain fish. Oh, interesting. So it could be that it's lost and and or yeah, it's not used and then regained further down the evolutionary tree. It could be that like this argument with warm bloodedness that somehow when you evolve the the structure for warm bloodedness that this is a byproduct of that or it could be that yes this, it comes from this sort of basal fish REM sleep and has filtered its way down all the way to birds and mammals mm, cool so one cool thing I suppose is with dreams is that I forget them during the day but there's also situations where dreams can sort of bleed into our consciousness yeah that's true. This is a bit okay. So we're gonna move away from the the non-human animal kingdom for a minute and talk about humans. But I thought that this was interesting enough to bring up and talk about in our podcast today. We we talk about dreams, and we're all very familiar with dreams. But there are other types of hallucinations that happen around sleep, uh, and the sort of best known of these is called hypnagogic hallucinations, and they are sort of known as like auditory and visual hallucinations that happen as you're falling asleep and they can often pass unnoticed and they're often very subtle but they can take any sorts of forms so i'm as as the sort of self-appointed literary correspondent of the podcast i have a couple of just like a short paragraph to read to you from vladimir nabokov's speak memory where he describes some of his own hypnagogic hallucinations Um, and i picked this this um, sample because it has some animal imagery, and because I think it's written very beautifully, but it gives a good sense of like the scope of what you can, can encounter. So, as far back as I remember, I have been subject to mild hallucinations. Just before falling asleep, I often become aware of a kind of one-sided conversation going on in an adjacent section of my mind, quite independent from the actual trend of my thoughts. It is a neutral, detached, anonymous voice, which I catch saying words of no importance to me whatsoever. This silly phenomenon seems to be the auditory counterpart of certain pre-dormitory visions, which I also know well. They come and go, but are essentially different from dream pictures. They are often grotesque, but at times my photisms take on a rather soothing flu quality. And then I see, projected as it were, upon the inside of the eyelid, gray figures walking between beehives, or small black parrots gradually vanishing among mountain snows or a mauve remoteness melting beyond moving masts. Which I think sort of the idea of these being separate from dreams is that that when people have studied these in MRIs, what's happening is the visual cortex is being activated at the same time as some of the deeper, like the hippocampus, which is what happens during dreaming. Whereas I think in dreaming, the visual cortex is is stimulated either in a different way or is not not so strongly stimulated. Um, so this apparently happens to the majority of the population, these uh, hypnagogic hallucinations, though many people either don't uh, admit to them or want to admit to them because they see them as maybe like something unusual or pathological or psychotic, um, where, but they're completely normal apparently and non-pathological. I've had but one. You've had one, Nick. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, I imagine I've had more, but they were less noticeable. But the one I've had is I heard 
someone screaming from a place that I knew the scream couldn't come from. It wasn't like a long scream. It was like, ah! And then it, like, woke me up. But then I was like, the scream couldn't have come from where I knew my brain had heard it. And I was like, oh, you're just, it's just a, you're sleeping and you're just, yeah, having a little bit of a hallucination. Nice, quick assessment of your mental processes there. Well, I did, where I was working, we were doing an exhibition on consciousness, which I think probably helps me out. Cool. Cool. Um, do you know what's interesting, though, relating to animals hmm. is, so I think it was the ancient Greeks, but it was definitely somewhat ancient. They thought that what was happening, there was a sort of a, a horse that would visit you at when you were going to sleep and would sit on your chest and cause these hallucinations and, and, and make you feel like you're being paralyzed. And do you know what we might call a female horse? A mare. And when would it visit you? At night. <laughs> so that's why they're called nightmares, because they used to believe a horse was coming in and sitting on your chest. Cool. This actually leads directly into the second type of hallucination that I wanted to talk about, which is much less common than the hypnagogic, but some people still may have experience with it. It's called a hypnopompic hallucination. And it happens while waking rather than while falling asleep. While the hypnagogic hallucinations can feel like they're happening in, they feel sort of like Vladimir Nabokov described in a different room or in sort of an adjacent section of the mind where you can sort of imagine them as real, but you know that, like Nick, you said, you knew that it didn't happen in that space. It couldn't have happened there. So it wasn't in that sense. You could say, logically, this doesn't make sense. It's not real. But a hypnopompic hallucination can seem like it's you can it can you can feel as if you're fully awake and visually hallucinating something present in the room with you or in the space with you and often these can be pleasant but the majority of them can be horrific and terrifying um and this is where i think we'll get to this in a minute but this is where the idea of a sleep paralysis sleep paralysis and the sleep paralysis demon come from uh but i have another small sample for you from an australian man named donald fish great name uh, who describes uh, in a really in a really exciting and vivid list some of his common hypnopompic hallucinations. So they include a huge figure of an angel standing over me next to a figure of death in black, a rotting corpse lying next to me, a huge crocodile at my throat, hideous faces laughing at me, giant spiders, very frequent, huge hand over my face and one on the floor five feet across, Drifting spider webs, birds and insects flying into my face, two faces looking at me from under a rock, an image of myself, only older, standing by the bed in a suit, and my favorite, two rats eating a potato. <laughs> um, I am, I think, fortunate enough that I have never had a hypnopompic hallucination because they sound awful, but apparently they can feel like incredibly real when you wake up and you see them in the room with you. Yeah, I've had I've had them. Yeah, the sleep paralysis ones. For, for me, the first time it happened because I didn't know what was going on, I like was like this is fully real. So the first time I remember it happening, I was asleep and then someone opened the door to my room and then stood there eating crackers and then closed the door. And I was like, "What?" So I like I like woke up. I I couldn't move for a couple of seconds and then I sort of like was able to get myself like moving and I got up and I went into my mom's room and was like mom like why were you there eating 
food at my door and then but she was asleep so obviously it wasn't but um then later when it happened to me a couple of other times I realized what it was yeah other times I imagined like a dog sniffing at my head another time I imagined like a robot like drone thing and for me it usually happens in like two stages because I'm sort of aware of, of what they are the first stage I'm like what is this really scary thing and I'm like no this isn't a real scary thing you're okay but then I can't move. So the next scary thing is like, okay, try to move, try to move. And then m- most of the time I know that I will eventually be able to move. But the first couple of times I was like, I'll never be able to move again. Um, but yeah, like I, I think it's probably happening for like a couple of seconds, but it feels like it goes on for quite a while. And then, yeah, I sort of wake up. Sometimes like I can like feel it's about to happen as well. If I'm really tired, I'll like no I'm gonna get a sleep paralysis but it hasn't happened in a while it's usually for me it usually happens when I'm like really tired and sleep deprived or stressed or something bit scary like for me I feel like I can kind of step away from it a little like I can usually make the first hallucination part stop and then I'm just scared because I can't move but I know other people like they feel like they're trapped in it for ages and like I've I've heard of other people like it's stopping them go to sleep as well. But yeah, something interesting. I, I was looking up some some causes for it. Like there are some kind of can, underlying conditions that can cause it. But I think yeah, they're not really. I don't know if you have more information, but I think yeah, it's just something that can happen for some people. I think it's not very well understood, but mm-hmm. it's it's not hard to imagine how things like seeing a demon or an angel or a ghost or someone that you isn't in your house when you actually wake up in your room and it feeling incredibly real might inspire or perpetuate or encourage stories about ghosts and angels and demons and things that we sort of think of as supernatural, but maybe just creations from our own mind. Yeah. Or, crucially, aliens. (laughs) So the idea, this has been the explanation for many people who swear blind that what happened was that they were asleep and then these creatures came into their room and there were bright lights and then they were taken away and they did strange things and you were paralyzed and then they woke up in their own bed. And this has been a common complaint and it's, yeah, very much explained by yeah what you experience. Although very few people report that aliens eat crackers. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that does sound terrifying. Mm. For me, it got less scary when I knew what it was, just because I could sort of, like, help myself wake up. But yeah, I I definitely don't envy people who get them worse than me. So I suppose we sort of focus very much on the sleep that we do daily, or attempt to at least. But there are sort of other periods where animals sort of drift off for a little bit longer, I suppose is the best way to put that. <laughs> yeah. I assume that you're referring to hibernation is interesting. So initially when I learned about hibernation, when I was studying an undergrad, I was specifically told that bears don't hibernate. But actually when I was researching it today, something that I've discovered is that they've actually changed how they define hibernation so that it does include bears. Cause it traditionally, it only was really to deep hibernators. So very small, mammals so really nothing bigger than a hamster like in the traditional sense hibernated but now that they've sort of adjusted this definition it includes bears initially 
they weren't thought to hibernate because their body temperature didn't drop low enough and they weren't in like a deep enough state. Then they could kind of wake themselves up. But but basically it's a state of inactivity and metabolic depression that's seen in endotherms. So it only happens in warm-blooded animals. So it usually happens during the winter months. But there is a version that happens during the summer or hot weather. Do you guys know what that's called? Oh, wait, don't say Estation. And yeah, you were incredibly close, Nick. Estivation. But it it functions to conserve energy uh, when food may not be available. So basically, these animals use their fat stores and kind of sleep for an extended period of time. And they, they really like, in some animals, particularly the small mammals, they really like shut down their their temperature significantly drops and they downregulate their metabolic rate. So they're processing like food and different things at a really, really slow rate. One of my favorite things about bears is they quite often give birth in hibernation, which if you ever think you've had a bad night's sleep, imagine (laughs) going to sleep and then waking up with a child. (laughs) Wow. Terrifying. (laughs) My Jesus, I'm so tired. And now this, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah they uh they actually give birth while they're asleep or not asleep while they're hibernating oh. yeah which is uh quite amazing so hibernating can only occur if you're warm-blooded because as you say it's to do with a significant drop in your body temperature so it's only possible in mammals and birds but birds there wasn't really a lot of finding them there was one bird they found it but i've forgotten its name but i imagine if you google the one bird that hibernates <laughs> it's quite easy to find Apparently, it's the common pool will. Yes. Thank you, Nick. But what's interesting I found was there's actually, it's not hibernation, but like you say, that some animals can shut down without hibernation. One of these animals did an amazing trick. It was in what was then the British Museum. It had natural history collections, which would go on to become the Natural History Museum in London. And they got sent a delivery from Egypt. And in there was some dead snails. They'd been dry dead snails so they did what any good curator would do they glued it to a bit of a paper and then displayed it so people could see this dead snail because that's what weirdly we're into what they found is after four years they noticed that this snail was actually sort of producing film to protect itself and they noticed it was alive whoops yeah and i think it was even there was something to do with a change in the weather so it suddenly became moister So there was more um, water in the environment. And this is after four years and plus the travel from Egypt, having been found in Egypt and sent, that um, they put it in some water and, yeah, it slowly came out of its shell and started walking about. I'm sorry, the the switch from from Egypt to the UK wasn't enough moisture for it? You have too little faith in the ability of a museum to control its environment, Nick. Oh, that's true. (laughs) It's a museum. That's true. But, yeah, so after they found out it was alive, they had to unstick it from a bit of paper. And let it live. And they, yeah, they sort of monitored it for the next few years. The the species of snail was actually Eremina desertorum, which you can still find in Egypt if you were so inclined. Cool. Cool. I wonder how integrated pest management felt at the museum when they discovered that they had been preserving a live specimen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, it looks like it's now officially past my bedtime. So I'm yeah. gonna have to I'm gonna have to go back to bed. 
which means this podcast will have to come to an end. But it's been lovely talking to you too. Some mm-hmm. great facts about sleep. And I think next week we're going to be talking about brains. Which Ooh, you brains. T- yeah, you two are much more qualified than me on that matter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure um, how true that is, but... <laughs> She is sure. Um, <laughs> Smart and modest. <laughs> She's met us. <laughs> um, our, I mean, Naomi has to sit through what our listeners don't, which is all the edited stuff that we cut out. <laughs> uh, so I look forward to meeting you guys again for that. Uh, but I suppose for this week, uh, we should say our goodbyes. So, yeah, is goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's uh, goodbye from me. Bye-bye. On a side note, I thought what university a fish would go to. Tell us. They would go to Carpford. Guys, you don't need to mute your laughter. That's Yeah, that's what's happening. <laughs> you can't mute shame.